Welcome to Classics Confidential. This is the second in a pair of episodes about Roman memory. Last time we looked at imperial monuments and rituals that were connected to memory. But in this episode, we're scaling down to look at much smaller items, souvenirs and mementos. Over the next half hour, we'll meet a series of miniature objects which all have memories attached to them, whether that's the memory of a person or a place. And we'll be wondering whether the Roman period was a time when the relationship between material objects and memory changed somehow. Um, I think that particularly in the Roman Empire, when you had kind of possibilities for travel and the easy circulation of objects that were made possible by the bureaucracy of the empire, the standardized currency, the common languages, etc., um, that that really enabled kind of a widespread um, generation of various kinds of semantic memory through material culture in a way that would have been more difficult, not impossible, certainly, but um, that would have been more difficult in uh, earlier Mediterranean societies. That's Professor Maggie Popkin from Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. We'll hear more from her later in the programme, but for now, we're going to take our starting point with a tiny object from Roman Britain from a temple site in Oxfordshire called Marcham Frilford. It's introduced by Classics Confidential regular, Dr Zena Kamash. So one of the objects in particular that seems to me to be redolent of memory at Marcham Frilford is a small cattle figurine. Now this might not sound very exciting uh, or important, but actually it's one of the only fig- uh, figurative elements and objects that we have from Marcham. It was found fairly late on in our excavations and it's quite badly damaged, but it is significant not only because it's figurative, but because of what it looks like and what it's made of. So it looks like an object that you would find anywhere in the Eastern Mediterranean. In fact, if you found it in the Eastern Mediterranean, you probably wouldn't pay that much attention to it. A little cattle figurine, quite standard. In Britain, very unusual. Nothing really that has looked like that found anywhere else, as far as I've been able to find out. Though, as ever, if anybody knows any parallels do let me know I'm always happy to hear them Uh, but also so it looks like it's from the eastern Mediterranean but the fabric that it's made from the clay that it's made from is local Uh, it seems to have been made in the local Oxfordshire potteries so this sets up a slightly odd thing why do we have something that looks like it's from the eastern Mediterranean that's made really locally uh, and then deposited at this temple So one suggestion that I have made is that maybe this is someone who's travelled from the Eastern Mediterranean. They bring with them the memory of the religious practices that they used when they were at home, but they now have a different home and they need to put those two things together. So they put together their memory of an object that they used to worship with into a newly made object that they've commissioned and place that in the ground in this new temple. Uh, So they've created a a blended memory. It's so unique that they must have sat down and commissioned a potter to make it. And you can see little traces of decoration. It's got a little garland painted onto it. It would have been a beautiful little object that nobody else would have deposited. Um, So an unusual, one of those really rare times as well where you get to see an individual 
in the archaeological record. It's so hard for us to find individuals. We're mostly dealing with collectives. And this is this one little moment where you really can see an individual doing something, speaking to another individual to get something made just for them to be put in the ground in the same way as everybody else. So they're acting communally, but with this little element of individuality in there as well. That's a perfect artefact to start with. A tiny and relatively humble model of a farm animal, which must nevertheless have meant a huge amount to the person who had it made. We can imagine this person holding the finished model carefully, perhaps showing it off to others and using it as a way into talking about their memories of a far off place. Now this object was unique and specially commissioned, but other memory objects instead were mass-produced, designed by craftspeople for a much wider circulation. They're what we would call souvenirs. <laughs> Let's start with the language. Souvenir is a French word and means remembrance. But the word souvenir is always connected with an object, a certain place, and in our point now, with travel, with tourism. That's the voice of Professor Ernst Kunzel. In 2002, he published a book in German, the English title of which is Souvenirs and Devotional Objects. And it was co-written with Gerhard Köppel. Uh, let us look back for some seconds to the 18th century when modern tourism started and with your British upper class in the first place, we must say. In those days, a young aristocrat, a young nobleman had to make the so-called Grand Tour in French, the Grand Tour, the long trip, the great trip, especially to Italy, to visit the earth, the famous places and works of art. And our young aristocrat could thereby some little things to precious ones or cheap ones, and they called them souvenirs in French, because French was in those days the lingua franca of the educated public. No? Flicking through the pages of the book Souvenirs and Devotional Objects, we find a whole array of cheerful miniature things that don't look too dissimilar to the merchandise on sale at many tourist sites today. There are statuettes, model temples, even glass beakers adorned with images of cities and monuments. Uh, Roman tourism had its climate in the early and middle imperial period, and it was then when Roman craftsmen had the idea to offer souvenirs to the public. It was something like a growth market, you, we could say. You know? Craftsmen on special places of the empire discovered a chance to sell every kind of little knickknacks to wealthy Roman tourists. The target group was the Roman upper-class traveler touring the famous sites in Greece or Egypt. This is a line of business still alive until today. So, what kind of souvenirs were on sale? Small-scale copies of famous statues, waterfront pictures of tourist sites on glasses or on lamps, miniature portraits of celebrities like emperors or uh, even poets and so on. No composers. This was unknown antiquity. <laughs> pictures of victorious uh, charioteers from the races, from the chariot races, a very important field of business. And we have 
some little statues of the Artemis of Ephesus in tiny size. And this is the point uh, we have to keep in mind. Um, from colossal to tiny size, miniaturizing the colossal shape. This is one of the patterns uh, when we uh, speak of ancient souvenirs. Uh, in our days, you can buy the Statue of Liberty as a tiny figure for your sideboard. No? And here, too, modern travelers uh, follow the Romans. One well-known group of miniature souvenirs from antiquity are the glass vessels from Pozzuoli and Baiae on the Bay of Naples. These little flasks were probably made in the late 3rd or early 4th century CE. They're engraved with tiny schematic outlines of buildings and monuments. Here's Professor Maggie Popkin. They're small glass vases. You can kind of hold them in your hand and they have a globular bottom and then sort of a long, narrow neck. So they were designed to hold some kind of liquid. We're not sure exactly what. Um, this is a common shape in the later Roman Empire. So we have a lot of this kind of form of vase. But what's so fascinating about this series of vases that was manufactured on the Bay of Naples is that they're just covered. The bodies of the vases are covered with engraved decoration that comprises images and words. So we have these cityscapes, basically they're scenes that show these two cities on the Bay of Naples, um, ancient Puteli and Baiae, which correspond to modern Pozzuoli and Baiae. You can still go visit them today. And they show either Pozzuoli alone or a combination of Pozzuoli and Baia. And they show all these major monuments. Um, a lot of the monuments are labeled with inscriptions that tell us exactly what we're looking at. And then running above the engraved scene that has all these images and inscriptions, many of these vases also have uh, an inscription on the shoulder of the vase, so the area right below the, the, the neck of the bottle. And these are kind of personalized inscriptions that people could presumably add either when they purchased these flasks or when they brought them home. So it's a combination of kind of um, these pre-manufactured images of these cities and then uh, the ability to sort of add a little personal touch when you bought them. Pozzuoli and Baiae were major tourist destinations in Roman times. Pozzuoli was a big cosmopolitan port. It's where the grain ships would arrive from Alexandria. And Baiae was a hip resort town where elite Romans would go to relax and party. These cities also had a long tradition of getting special favours from Roman emperors. And this is something that the makers of the vases were keen to advertise. The imperial family had vast properties in Baia. There was an imperial palace there. Uh, many emperors patronized projects in the cities. Um, and we see that on these vases, the the kind of monuments that connect Pozzuoli and Baia to Rome and its emperors are the monuments that get emphasized. So we have, for example, on the Flasso Pozzuoli, we have the beautiful imperial amphitheater from Pozzuoli, which was built uh, in imitation of the Colosseum and probably was built by the city um, kind of as thanks to the emperor Vespasian, who actually gave the city a lot of extra territory after the civil wars that brought him to power. Um, we see the stadium that was probably built by the Emperor Antoninus Pius. Uh, we see the beautiful harbor mole that was instigated under Augustus. Uh, we see references, in fact, on the, the flasks that show Baiae 
to the Palatium, the Imperial Palace in Baia. So there's sort of a, a melding on these vases of kind of the um, the history of imperial connections that made these such prestigious destinations um, with uh, that were also, frankly, the monuments that continued to draw people uh, and drive the economy of these cities at the time that they were produced. These objects circulated widely in the Roman Empire, and they would have come to be seen and used and talked about by people who might not have seen, you know, Putalia or Baiae in person. And so I actually think that these kind of portable objects that were designed to circulate, right, souvenirs are designed to be brought far from where they're created, that they were a key means of generating semantic knowledge about these places in the Roman Empire. That's a really important point. We often think of souvenirs as related to autobiographical or episodic memory. To put this another way, souvenirs help you to remember a place you visited and the experiences you might have had there. And that's very often true, but they're also vehicles of what we call semantic memory, which is more of a broadly shared cultural knowledge. We go in now to take a brief detour to Agrigento in Sicily to a souvenir shop owned by Sonia Mora Castillo. When I was there looking for souvenirs, I chatted to Sonia about exactly this topic, the power of souvenirs to shape the view of the city she loved. Exactly, and that's why I created the campaign to collect signatures. It had a huge success in Sicily. We asked for a ban on the sale of all souvenirs related to the Mafia. You must have seen things like that in souvenir shops all around Sicily. T-shirts with the Godfather on them, that kind of thing. The image that people take away from Sicily must not be that. And you know, I collected 6,000 signatures in three days. I went to the Parco Archeologico in Agrigento with these 6,000 signatures. The Parco banned all souvenirs about the Mafia or the Godfather. And straight after that, the local council banned them too. And the council of Castellamare di Golfo did the same. And it's precisely because this is the image that a person takes away. Sonia's words clearly show that people today recognise how souvenirs can shape a country's image. That's why she's taken matters into her own hands. The merchandise on sale in her shop provides an alternative narrative about Sicily, nothing to do with the Godfather, but instead celebrating foods, fertility and religion. They say that Agrigento was chosen by the gods as their homeland because there were almonds here. Because in that period there was no artificial light, there was nothing. But almonds give you everything you need to survive. Oil, light, soap, flour... And the special thing about Agrigento is the almonds grow spontaneously. So I created this souvenir of Agrigento, this small painted ceramic model of an almond. The Romans gave almonds to women who they wanted to marry because it's an image of fertility. This thing inside the almond, the bit you eat, it's a seed, not a fruit. And it's also got the form of an ovary. So the intrinsic meaning of the almond is one of insemination and fertility. Sonia's souvenirs communicate things that make the city of Agrigento special. Things that she, as an inhabitant of the city, wants visitors to remember. 
It's a similar scenario to the ancient vases from Pozzuoli and Baiae, with their proud depictions of Roman imperial monuments. Long before holiday photographs, these ancient vases provided people all over the Roman Empire with carefully designed snapshots of the cities on the Bay of Naples. Even more impressively, we might say that they allowed visitors to Baiae and Pozzuoli to take part of those cities back home with them in the form of the liquid that the vases contained. This is something that Dr Emma-Jane Graham from the Open University has been studying. They might have held um, uh, perfumes or perfumed oil, more likely. Um, to me, it seems most likely that it's it's water for two, two reasons, really. One, that um, both of these sites are well known for their big thermal complexes. So people did go there to, uh, well, the Victorians would say, take the waters. Um, and that included bathing and, um, and just and relaxing and all of those sorts of things. Um, but also there are later sources that look at these sites, um, which continued into use into, through the medieval period, which actually show these uh, manuscripts that show images of people um, within the water and collecting it in small flasks that look very similar um, to the ones that we have from the from the Roman period, uh, collecting the water but also drinking the water. And we know from other sources as well that people did that. So um, Augustus had water sent to him from Antium that he used for his arthritis. Um, and there are other images. There's a, um, a patera from Spain that shows various scenes set in a sanctuary where people are collecting water and taking it away. So to me, it seems likely that that's what they're collecting. That's the essence of the place. That's what they've gone there for, to, to somehow be cured or just to, um, to have some kind of water-based hydrotherapy. Um, so it's the key element of that, of that place. This is fascinating. So the person would not only be taking away an image of the landscape, but part of the landscape itself. Going back to memory, would this kind of physical souvenir have a stronger ability to help someone remember their experience of a place? I asked Emma Jane about this and she started by unpacking the very notion of what a place is understood to be. Well, place is usually thought about in traditional studies as being a location on a map, a geospatial location, somewhere that is made up of perhaps a set of architectural things um, or a particular thing in the landscape that makes it a place. So you might think of a sanctuary as a place because it's got a temple and it's got an altar and, and all these sorts of things. But more recently, people have started to question the idea of places being so fixed and think of it more as a combination of space and time. So the coming together of people doing things in a particular way in relation to particular things around them in the landscape that might be built or might be natural um, and creating a very in-the-moment experience. So it's more about thinking about place as a, as a temporal thing. So you could go back to, let's say, take a sanctuary, you could go back to the same sanctuary, but because you're there with different people or you're doing slightly different things or it's a different time of the year or you're celebrating a different festival, your experience will be subtly different. So place is not fixed. It's a, you know, a has been described by some people as a time-space event um, instead of something that's just, you know, determined and, and never changing. So coming back to the glass vases, does that make it harder for people to remember places when they interact with souvenirs back home? Well, you might think that by taking some water away from one 
location, so let's say uh, these thermal complexes and taking it home, that you might be trying to recreate the experience that you had there. So taking something of the essence of that place with you and being able to recreate it when you get back home. But if you understand place to be this combination of people doing things uh, in relation to other things, other objects and time, it kind of becomes impossible to ever recreate that experience of place. Um, so you might think that by bringing some water back, you open the, the flask and it smells like the place that you were. It, um, it, it feels like it because it's wet. Um, it may have the same sort of um, healing properties because it's still got the same minerals and so on in it. Um, but it then starts to disrupt that experience and that and your memories of that place because it's it's cold now rather than perhaps being warm it's still unless you shake it because it's no longer gushing out of out of the rock um it's there's, there's a finite amount of it there's only a small amount in the flask whereas when you're at the thermal complex it was perhaps abundant and um you know overwhelming um plus you're now at home you're perhaps by yourself or you're with your family or with different people so your memories of that place i think um are affected by the fact that you've got a sort of imperfect way of recalling it. Um, so, I mean, one example I give is when I went to visit Mount Etna recently and I took a piece of stone, a bit of um, lava away from it with me that was cooled, thinking that when I got home it would remind me of my experience. But actually what it reminds me is that I'm never going to be in that same place again on a wet, dreary October day with a bunch of people I didn't know. Um, I'm never going to actually be able to relive that experience of place. So I might go back there, but it will be different. So I think what I'm sort of trying to say is that memory is caught up with these understandings of, of place and that we perhaps need to complicate the way in which we think material things can transpose the idea of place from one location to another. That's such an important point and it's central to how souvenirs work. They can't ever take us back to a place. Sometimes they even make us more acutely aware of our distance from that place and our inability to ever relive our experience there. And this complicated relationship between presence and absence is true of other types of memento as well. If we think about photographs in our own life of, of people that are gone, it's what is that photograph now representing? It's a memory on the one hand, it's also a sense of the absent person, but also the photograph in itself takes on a, a meaning. It's not just an image anymore, it, in itself it becomes something of, of value. Dr Valerie Hope is also from the Open University and her research focuses on Roman death and funerary rituals. Now, we've got plenty of large public funerary monuments surviving from the Roman Empire, gravestones, mausolea, civic portraits, that kind of thing. But we also know that Romans used smaller objects sometimes when they were commemorating their dead. We don't have much direct evidence of that in the Roman world, but we can see hints of it um, in people's wills where they might specify that certain items were to go to certain people. And these can be items that could have had value. So we're talking here about items of clothing, and we have to remember in the Roman world, clothing could be expensive. 
we're talking sometimes about jewellery um, and also um, what's quite often called toilet wear, so ointment jars, perfume bottles, and that these should be left to specific people. And again, they could be doing this because these items are worth a lot of money. But sometimes you get the suggestion, especially when we see women leaving these items to fellow women, that they're that's a deliberate choice. They want these items to go to that specific person, not just because the items have some monetary value, but because that person is going to treasure them, get use out of them to be sure, but perhaps also associate them with the giver. When we're looking at small objects that have survived from antiquity, it's generally very difficult to know whether they were used in this way. It's always possible they were. It may even have been the case with the glass souvenir bottles discussed earlier in this programme. Some of those have been found in graves, and this suggests that they were considered precious by their owners, perhaps even having passed down through generations as a family heirloom before being deposited in the grave. And occasionally we find cases where precious objects are very clearly associated with the commemoration of lost loved ones. Well, Alia Potestas was a freedwoman who... uh, lived and died in Rome. We're not exactly sure of the date. Could have been 2nd century CE, could have been a bit earlier, could have been a bit later. Um, At her death, she was commemorated um, by a man. We're not sure if he was her former owner or her former husband or partner, but he uh, wrote quite a lengthy epitaph, or at least had the epitaph inscribed in her memory, in which he talked about her looks and her appearance, spoke about all her typical good wifely qualities, she was good at keeping house, she was modest and charming. Um, There is an odd reference that she might have had two lovers at some point but we're not quite sure how to translate that. But the little bits of the epitaph I've been most interested in is a bit towards the end where the commemorator talks about some memory strategies, about how he is personally going to remember her. And in this he makes reference to um, a piece of jewellery. It's a gold item. We're not sure whether it's a bracelet or a ring, but it's inscribed with Alia's name. And he also makes reference to a small portrait Again, we don't know whether this was a statue or a statuette, but it seems to be something that's portable, that he can take with him places. So these are little small items, or relatively small items, that he is using to think about Alia, to remember her. In some ways it's reminiscent of Victorian mourning jewellery, but on the other hand, we don't know with this bracelet whether it was something that belonged to Alia before death, that had her name on it as a sign of possession, which then he's inherited and has decided to wear as a token of memory and mourning, or if it's something that he's had specifically commissioned as a piece of mourning jewellery that helps him. But it's kind of a nice sort of little subtle gesture, really, that he's wearing something that carries her name, he's wearing it close to his body, almost if it's in place of the bodily contact he once would have had with his loved one. Um, It's inscribed with her name, not his, so it's just a token of her, not so much the relationship. Um, And it's unusual to get this reference in the epitaph, and we don't have direct parallels for this elsewhere in text that I've been able to find, but we do have pieces of jewellery from the Roman world that have people's names inscribed on them. But of course it's very difficult to know whether these are 
indications of ownership, i.e. you've scratched your name onto it or had it inscribed on it to make sure that it belongs to you um, and to make sure that everybody else knows and nobody runs off with it, or whether in some cases these could have had a memorial function, that somebody has taken an item, treated it a bit like the Victorians would, where they would create these items specifically um, as pieces of jewellery to remember the deceased person. So they might take hair, for example, from the dead body and weave it into a piece of jewellery, or have a, a portrait and wear it in a locket, and it would be very much a, a symbol of their loss. So we've got hints that at certain points the Romans may have been doing something similar, um, but direct evidence for it is quite limited. This kind of mourning objects, whether we're talking about jewellery, perfume bottles or small portrait statuettes, they have a lot to tell us about the way in which tiny portable things relate to memory, how they mark absence as much as presence and, very importantly, how they carry on accruing meaning as time goes by. On the one hand, they're promoting the memory of the dead person, but they're also playing a part in how that person is mourned for. Um, and there's that intersection there. And there's, there's also a point at which there's probably a bit of a flip, where in the objects in particular, yes, they're memorialising the dead person, but they're also potentially memorialising the mourning. There comes a point in, 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 your, in grieving where your grief perhaps isn't as intense as it used to be. And having these reminders, it's memorialising the person, but it's also a tribute to the grief and the intensity of that feeling and emotion that perhaps you once had. So it's, it's a dual memorialising process that's going on there, both of the individual, but also of the emotions and the relationships and the sense of loss that comes with the human condition and the grief that that encompasses. That brings us to the end of the programme. You can learn more about Roman strategies for remembering people and places by going onto the Classics Confidential website where you can find a list of articles and books written by this programme's contributors. These were, in order of appearance, Maggie Popkin, Zena Kamash, Ernst Kunzel, Sonia Muro-Castillo, Emma-Jane Graham and Valerie Hope. I'm Jessica Hughes and I hope you can join us next time for another episode of Classics Confidential.